This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. In this episode, I talk about the horrendous Virginia Beach shooting, President Trump's dubious appearance at a church service, and one historian's quest to expose alleged sexual exploits of Martin Luther King Jr. But first, some announcements and updates. We're up to 109 reviews on iTunes, and we still have a five-star average rating. One of my favorite parts of each episode of Footnotes is reading through these reviews and sharing them with you. This week, the review comes from PD Boy PDX, and he says, Jamar, it's such an honor to hear your podcast. As a white man growing up, unexposed to the truths of American history, learning every day to make changes in me, then to my little social circle, I can't thank you enough for the work you put in to help this movement forward. I'm excited for the work that is coming and can't wait to hear every episode. Thank you so much, PD Boy PDX. That's high praise. And to the rest of us, have you remembered to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast yet? This really helps increase the visibility. So if you want other folks to know about it, one of the easiest and best ways to do it is to leave a review, subscribe, rate, and review. Do it now. Join the club. All the cool kids are doing it. I'm also excited to announce that registration for our first national conference is now open. I have the privilege of serving as the president and co-founder of The Witness, a black Christian collective, and we're hosting our national conference this fall, October 4th and 5th, 2019, in Chicago. It's going to be at the historic Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church, which is often referred to as the birthplace of gospel music. So head on over to joyandjustice.com, that's joyandjustice.com, all spelled out, and register today to get extra early bird pricing. I can't wait to see you in Chicago. Finally, I've got to tell you about my trip to the island of St. Kitts. My family and I went on a much-needed vacation. It's been an incredibly hectic spring for me, hectic in a good way because I was on this book tour for my first book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity and Racism. You can purchase that in audiobook, ebook, or hardcover form wherever books are sold. So I was ready for a break, and what a spectacular one this was. I could say a lot about this beautiful place. I mean, the beaches going up to this point where the Caribbean meets the Atlantic and, and seeing the waves from the two bodies of water crash together, the volcano that dominates the landscape, the incredible food. But let me just say a little bit about the culture and the history. So St. Kitts, like most islands in the Caribbean, has this tragic history of colonization. And this particular island has one of the oldest histories with it. It was first colonized by the French and then the British. And we visited a sugarcane plantation owned by a man named Samuel Jefferson, who was purported to be the great-great-great-grandfather of none other than Thomas Jefferson. 
So you want to talk about the generational wealth that was created through the exploitation of African slaves? You can see a direct link between the colonization of the Caribbean and the creation of an elite class in the early United States. I also got to see what is believed to be the first Anglican church in the Caribbean and the first British settlement in what is sometimes called the West Indies. But most of all, I loved seeing so many black people. Most of the time, if black people go on vacation, depending on where you go, other black folks are few and far between. But in St. Kitts, we saw a lot of other black tourists. And I never felt hyper-visible as I have sometimes felt when traveling. On top of that, and even more memorable to me, was the fact that all the local folks were black. And there wasn't this huge separation between the people who came there to visit and the local. There are some places you can go where you never interact with local people except maybe a transaction at a restaurant or in a store. But here, it was very clear that the island belonged to the locals and you were their guests, and it was wonderful to be able to encounter them in all kinds of situations. And they were wonderful people. They were friendly and open. They were. They even seemed excited to see us. I loved being in a place where they were crafting their own narrative about what it means to be black and independent. They've reclaimed their land. They have pride in who they are and where they're going. So I can only hope upon hope that I can visit St. Kitts again one day soon. You can head over to my Instagram, at Jamar Tisby, if you want to see some really, really good pictures, including me holding a couple of monkeys. Now, on to the news. A bit of good news to begin with. Lonnie G. Bunch has been elected secretary of the Smithsonian Institute. He is the first African-American to hold the position in the Institute's 173-year history. Now, you may recognize Dr. Bunch as the director of the highly acclaimed National Museum of African-American History and Culture, or the NMAAHC. I finally, finally got to go there for the first time a couple of months ago, and I can't recommend it highly enough. It is, it is so well done, and the museum alone is worth planning an entire trip to Washington, D.C. So in this role, Bunch will be responsible for the day-to-day operations of the Smithsonian's 19 museums, 21 libraries, and the National Zoo. He's an incredible choice for this role since he has so ably led the Museum of African American History for over a decade. Uh, He's been acquiring rare artifacts, including one of the most remarkable ones, the casket, where Emmett Till was laid for his funeral and viewing. So all those pictures you see of Till's tragically mutilated face, that casket he's lying in is actually in the museum, among many, many, many other artifacts. Dr. Bunch served as a great spokesperson for the museum under incredible scrutiny and press coverage, so he'll be amply prepared for this role and this very important job of preserving and promoting our public history. So congratulations to Lonnie G. Bunch III. Now on to some more sobering news. We had another mass shooting. According to an article in New York Magazine on Friday afternoon, a longtime employee of the city of Virginia Beach entered the municipal complex where he worked with a 45 caliber handgun and began shooting. 
According to authorities, at least a dozen people on three floors of the building and in a car outside were killed along with the shooter. Now, unfortunately, these things are happening so often that we're actually becoming numb to these mass shootings. And just to put it in sort of numerical perspective, a tweet by Virginia Senate candidate Kasim Rashid said this, Today is the 151st day of 2019. Virginia Beach is the 150th mass shooting of 2019. He goes on to say the GOP has passed a Muslim ban, a refugee ban, an asylee ban, abortion ban, disaster aid ban. But for the 5,780 Americans killed by guns in 2019 so far, zero gun laws have passed, zero gun reform, and zero accountability. Presidential candidate Bernie Sanders said, The days of the NRA controlling Congress and writing our gun laws must end. Congress must listen to the American people and pass gun safety legislation. The sickening gun violence must stop. And if, you know, you needed more data, according to the annual gun law scorecard put out by the Gifford Law Center, states with stronger gun laws experience lower rates of gun violence. Imagine that. The report, which grades states on their gun safety measures and compares those scores to 2018 gun violence statistics, found that seven of the 10 states with the strongest gun laws also have the lowest rates of gun death. Our production assistant, Christina Button, is actually from Virginia Beach, and I want to read her words and analysis on this because I certainly couldn't do it better, and I can only echo the sentiments of someone who's from this area. Christina says, This one hit close to home. I'm a Virginia Beach native. My parents live 10 minutes from the municipal center and have for the last 25 years. My family origins rest in this area on both my maternal and paternal side of my family since the early 1900s. I have my thoughts about the gun debate, better gun laws, etc., but this is a reminder that we need to have all hands on deck to eradicate the world's heartache from these senseless acts of terror. It's sad that the suspect had a suppressor. I read a report that said the sound of gunfire saves lives. There's always debate on people discussing so soon after these mass shootings, and when is the appropriate time to have these discussions? There's never a right time, in my opinion. Let the people affected by this mourn, and may we mourn with them. Christina goes on to say, and let those who have power to prevent these senseless acts advocate for change. Many hands make light work, and I pray for a day that a drastic loss of life in a day's work will soon be something that would jar us to change because it isn't supposed to be normal. This isn't the way we should accept living or losing life. And let those who have power to prevent these senseless acts advocate for change. Many hands make light work. And I pray for a day that a drastic loss of life in a day's work will soon be something that would jar us to change because it isn't supposed to be normal. This isn't the way we should accept living or losing life. Christina brings up the shooting. She says, because of the NRA's own racist, nationalist, self-serving, and anti-black stance and their lack of concern for black life, but also their idolization of their precious armory. And I say it's long past time for common sense gun laws. This is not the sole solution, of course, but let's not enable mass murder by easy access to guns with suppressors, extended magazines, or semi-automatic rifles. Now, whether you're a gun owner or a gun opposer, part of creating 
a culture of flourishing must include controlling and regulating these instruments of death. Enough is enough. What happens when a president crashes your church service? You may have heard that President Trump went to church on Sunday. For a person who many white evangelicals hail as God's chosen man to return America to its supposedly Christian roots, going to a church service shouldn't be remarkable. But this president has proven, uh, shall we say, less than pious in many ways. So what had happened was, President Trump is out golfing. He seems to have had this spontaneous epiphany that he needs to go to church. But by now, it's early afternoon, and most churches have already let out for the day. His staff frantically searches for a place of worship that might still be going on, and lo and behold, McLean Bible Church. It has a service that started at 1 o'clock p.m., and if they rush, they can make it before the service ends. Enter the pastor, David Platt, a well-known white evangelical. He wrote the popular book, Radical, and served as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board. He had finished his sermon and was standing off to the side when his staff gave him word that the President of the United States has asked for prayer, and he'll be here in the next few minutes. What do you do? Well, David Platt prayed for the president. That's not the issue, of course. The Bible commands us to pray for our leaders. The problem wasn't even the content of the prayer per se. Dr. Platt carefully avoided any endorsement of the president or his policies. He gave essentially what amounts to an evangelistic message that said, quote, God, we pray that Trump would know how much you love him, so much that you sent Jesus to die for his sins, our sins. So we pray that he would look up to you that he would trust in you, that he would lean on you, that, we, that he would govern and make decisions in ways that are good for justice and good for righteousness and good for equity, every good path. Nothing objectionable in that prayer that would at least lead you to believe that Platt is a shill for the president or one of the, quote, court evangelicals, as historian John Fia would say. So it wasn't the praying, it wasn't necessarily the content of the prayer, though some could level objections about was not what was not in the prayer. So then what, would, what caused all this controversy that we're seeing on social media and in the news and in articles? I think it was the fact that this prayer took place on stage in front of the entire congregation. First off, it became a useful photo op for the president. He can trot this picture out to stoke his white evangelical base and show them, hey, he's really serious about this Christian stuff. Now, never mind the misogyny or the sexism or the racism or the egregious policies. He, can, he came into this church service. He stayed for a total of about 15 minutes and in that time requested to be prayed for publicly in front of the congregation. Now, what other person would you let do that in your church? Is this a form of favoritism or preferential treatment that the book of James talks about in the Bible? Furthermore, why on earth would the president choose this particular Sunday to make an emergency trip to church? It bears noting that Trump was in his golfing clothes, complete with golf shoes and an uncharacteristically slicked back hairstyle. 
And that just speaks sort of to the last minute nature of the trip. Now, maybe he chose this day because Franklin Graham, head of Samaritan's Purse, the son of Billy Graham, and a diehard Trump supporter, designated this particular Sunday as a day of prayer for the president. His request was filled with national sentiment, and and, and Graham's request wasn't just any Christian leader saying that we should pray for the president. It had distinct political implications. Now, the White House put a spin on the whole affair, saying that Trump going there was to pray for the victims of the mass shooting in Virginia Beach, but no mention of the victims was made. The president didn't comment at the church, but at the end of the prayer, he was greeted with applause. Now, I don't know if that was for the prayer, the president, or both, or something else. And then the president pumped his fist in the air as if in a gesture of victory and celebration. So a lot of folks have criticized this move to pray for the president in an impromptu way in front of the congregation. No one I know is saying that we shouldn't pray for the president, but they are looking at how this affected members of the congregation, especially women and people of color. When you look at the president's history of racism, including his calling for the death penalty for the now exonerated five from Central Park, When you look at his attempt to ban people from Muslim countries, calling Mexican immigrants rapists, and people from predominantly black and Latino countries as coming from S-hole countries, and even drastically reducing the number of Christian refugees entering the country in an attempt to flee religious persecution, there are many people who, in light of all these facts, could have been extremely hurt by this man's presence at the front of their church. And we should also mention that this president is under investigation for impeachment. So again, this isn't a matter of simple partisan difference. Here's what I think we need to think about. First, does your church have a clear policy on how to receive candidates for public office or elected officials? I think this could look a lot of ways. Some people say no candidates or officials appear in front no matter what. Other people might say, well, anyone is welcome, but we'll make sure that various political parties and views are represented so it's not looking like we're favoring one party or ideology over any other. And some will simply say, well, you know, have the dignitaries sit in the pew and stand and be recognized or sit and be recognized, but but not make a big deal out of it. Now, I sympathize with David Platt. I honestly don't know what I would have done in that situation with little time to deliberate or consult about a decision. I think. Platt erred on the side of an evangelist. That's really at the core of what he does. He's a missionary and an evangelist, and he took this as an opportunity to pray for the salvation of Trump's soul. But even after that, though, here's the thing. He wrote a letter of explanation to his congregation. It was an open letter, so he published it for anyone to read. And in that letter, he said he knew that it may have deeply and negatively affected some members, but he did not, contrary to some headlines, issue an apology. Nor did he say that he would have done things differently if he'd had more time to think. Now, I think that's telling. And there's no shade to Pastor Platt, but I think there were other ways to handle this. I think it's telling that Trump felt he could enter what was to him a pretty random white evangelical church and be received well. I think it's also important that many white Christian leaders have no idea the impact of this president or this presidency has had and is having on racial and ethnic minority communities. I mean, I can imagine being in that congregation as a black person with a black family, and I might honestly wonder what my place was there, how much I mattered. I know what the leaders say, but then I see what they do. I see this spectacle. 
And it's a reminder to Christian leaders to heed the voices of the marginalized in their midst. Finally, is this an argument for a more liturgical kind of church? I mean, I can imagine this whole situation might have played out differently in a church with not just an order of service, but sort of a distinct liturgical tradition. Now, this is just Jamar talking, but imagine a Catholic, Lutheran, or an Anglican church. I think there could have been less opportunity to disrupt, you know, sort of the regularly scheduled programming for an impromptu visit by anyone, even the president, because they have such a strong liturgical tradition. But at the end of the day, for all of us, I hope this occasion gives every community of faith pause to ponder how to manage the political implications of their actions. Even the attempt not to make a political statement is in itself a political statement. To refuse to take sides is to tacitly side with the status quo. Think on this. A historian writes about MLK's alleged sexual exploits. So recently, a Pulitzer Prize winning biographer of Martin Luther King Jr. by the name of David J. Garrow wrote a piece about what he characterizes as the stunning revelations of the civil rights leader's sexual exploits. It's long been common knowledge that King had extramarital affairs while he served as the most prominent figurehead and spokesperson in the struggle for racial justice in the 50s and 60s. Now Garrow has examined newly released FBI documents that were inadvertently included in a release of information about John F. Kennedy's assassination. So Garrow wrote his 8,000-word essay in Standpoint magazine, which I'd never heard of, but it's a conservative publication in the United Kingdom. The most explosive revelation was the allegation that King, quote, looked on, laughed, and offered advice as a pastor from another congregation raped a woman from that pastor's congregation while they were in a hotel room. The essay goes on to state that King had even more affairs than once thought and that he participated in group sex. So, wow, that's a lot. And obviously, this is important for several reasons. First, it gets to the heart of what historians do, which is find evidence and evaluate it for its veracity. So as a student of history, this one hits close to home because it's all about our discipline and our profession. David Garrow, a historian of high stature, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. He's had a long and distinguished career. He's taking a massive risk to his reputation as a scholar in publishing this piece. So this most explosive claim about King witnessing and encouraging a rape, it's based on the handwritten marginal notes of an unknown FBI employee. The transcripts themselves are based on audio tapes that won't even be available to the public until 2027. So there's no way to verify the truthfulness of the transcripts or the notes. In addition, it's well known that the FBI had it out for King. They attempted to blackmail him with tapes of his affairs and threatened to make his affairs public, and they even encouraged him to kill himself. The FBI 
under the notorious J. Edgar Hoover, formed the Counterintelligence Program, or COINTELPRO, that spied on civil rights leaders and attempted to sabotage many of them in an effort to defame and derail the civil rights movement. So, the information's biased at best, and we need to be dubious and skeptical of the veracity of it. Second, it's important to note that more than two dozen publications actually refused to publish Garrow's essay. They thought his evidence was actually too tenuous and the implications too important to take a risk on it. It's also the case that many historians have taken Garrow to task for his work of speculation. Now, I recommend you read Barbara Ransby's piece in the New York Times. Ransby wrote a, bio a biography of civil rights activist Ella Baker, and in her New York Times article, Ransby said, This irresponsible account, drawn from questionable documents, has serious shortcomings and risks turning readers into historical peeping toms by trafficking in what amounts to little more than rumor and innuendo from FBI files. So as a layperson who's not trained in historical research, I recommend you take all of this with a grain of salt. Know that for many historians, Garrow's latest work on King doesn't pass the smell test. Now that doesn't mean there's no merit to what he said, but we have very little data to either confirm or deny these explosive allegations. So read his essay, but pay more attention to his other historical work, including his award-winning biography of King called Bearing the Cross. Lastly, what if this turns out to be true, or at least substantially true, about King? What if King did witness and encourage a rape? What if the extent of his affairs is far more than we ever knew? Well, it's quite simple. As my Pass the Mic co-host Tyler Burns would say, anyone can get it. No person, past or present, is immune from critique and re-evaluation. I've said this about many pastors, theologians, and other Christians who some people revere. I don't lift up people like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, R.L. Dabney, James Henley Thornwell, or even folks like Billy Graham because their status as slaveholders, uh, segregationists, or their milquetoast responses to black civil rights makes me want to look elsewhere. And for avowed slaveholders and segregationists in particular, I don't think we should even hold them up as examples of good Christian thinkers. I mean, to me, they're missing something major about the gospel, and their whole theological system needs to be rethought if they thought they could literally own people of African descent and saw little or no conflict with that belief and Jesus's life and teachings. Now, in the same way, we might have to reevaluate how we view Dr. King in light of new revelations. That means we may need to think about all these streets named after him, buildings and schools with his name on it. I probably share an MLK quote at least once a week. I might have to find other civil rights leaders with less notorious records to quote. Now, I'm not saying we're there or that we ever will be, but anything's on the table for anyone. That's what I'm saying. Now, I think there's a major difference between someone like King and those other white Christian slaveholders and segregationists, okay? There's not a, I don't want to put up a false equivalency, and this is not that. So I think the main difference is King did not attempt to justify his adultery from Scripture, while many white Christian leaders preached, taught, and wrote entire books using Scripture to defend American race-based chattel slavery. There's no indication that King ever thought what he was doing was right, he kept it hidden because he, he knew there was some shameful aspect to it. 
And in fact, there are allusions in some of his sermons to scrutinizing oneself and how even people on the front lines of civil rights and justice can be subject to major moral sins. But many of the white Christian leaders of the past who are now held up as exemplary theologians and people of faith, they defended their bigoted views with the Bible. They went to their graves never repenting of their perspectives about the marginalization and oppression of black people. They effectively functioned to prop up a system of racial discrimination in the United States. Meanwhile, an assassin killed Dr. King for doing just the opposite because he stood for the beloved community and stood against racism and other forms of injustice. So I think at the end of the day, no matter what comes to light about Dr. King, because of what he fought for and what he stood against, he'll never be in exactly the same category as white Christians who defended slavery, segregation, and racial inequality, oftentimes using scripture and the Bible as a buttress for their views. So to conclude, we ought never to put people on pedestals. Their feet of clay will crumble under the pressure. We are at best human, and there was and only ever will be one perfect person. Jesus Christ is the only person who ever lived where the messenger never once contradicted the message. Thanks be to God for that. So that's it for this week. Remember to like my author page on Facebook so we can continue this discussion. That's at facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby one, facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby and the number one. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, both at Jamar Tisby. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness podcast suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.